Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Today, we finish out a series that we began nine weeks ago entitled, Who? Over to my right, you can see an almost completely filled silhouette of pictures representing the diversity of the members of the body here at Covenant. We're different people, in case you haven't noticed. Some of us react differently to different things. Some of us get angry at things that other people wouldn't, and vice versa. Uh, We respond differently to different kinds of stimuli. We look at the world differently, and God created us that way. Now, the key to us getting along in that, respecting that in each other, as well as moving forward as one, is something called self-awareness. One of the great reformers from 500 years ago said that that true wisdom actually comes from two parts, knowledge of God on the one hand and knowledge of the self on the other. And it's that idea of self-awareness that we've been looking at as as we examine the, the multiple biographies in Scripture that deal with the various kinds of individuals that you might find in the local church. And some of you have gotten hit, uh, and, and many of you have recognized you've gotten hit more than once. That's because unlike any psychological test, including the one that we've commended to you, we don't believe that that God types you or puts you in a box. You are far more than simply one thing. But there are ways that God has wired you, and because you're fallen, There are ways that that, that you're more prone to sin than others might be. There are ways that they're more prone to sin than you might be. And so over the last nine weeks, we've been talking about those various kinds of individuals. And we we finished today by looking at one of the most philosophically driven of the nine. Uh, There's a four-year-old girl who came running down the hall screaming with her father in kind of emergency mode, jumping out of his chair to run toward her in the living room. And she's holding her head and, and something is badly wrong, or at least it seems like it is. And he, he picks her up and he says, sweetheart, what is wrong? And she said, daddy. And she called the name of her nine month old brother. He pulled my hair and it hurt. He pulled it hard. Well, being a good dad, he enveloped her more deeply in his arms and brought her the comfort that a father ought to bring her. And then at the end of that and shedding a few tears with her, looked at her and said, sweetheart, I am so sorry that that happened to you. But before I put you down, can you listen to me? You need to understand something about your brother. He doesn't realize what he's doing, sweetie. He's nine months old. And when he reaches out like that and grabs your hair, he's experimenting. He's not trying to be mean. He doesn't know that that hurts you. Can you understand that? And she said, yeah, I can understand that, Daddy. And so he said, wonderful. And he kissed her on the forehead and sent her back down the hall. About two minutes later, this blood-curdling scream comes from the baby. Dad goes running down the hall. He rounds the corner into the bedroom, and he said, what's wrong? And his four-year-old girl looks up with a smile and says, nothing, Daddy. Now he knows. (laughs) Sometimes... It's hard to see the perspective of the other person in it. Sometimes it's so hard to see the perspective of the other person, the gifts of the other person, even the liabilities of the other person, that you you look at them and the only thing you can see is wrong, juxtaposed against your right. 
That's part of what we've been trying to cut through these last eight weeks. And the, the individual that, that we're going to talk about today has some great strengths, but if I was going to describe their greatest weakness, it would be this. Nobody struggles with obtaining the perspective of another like a person that I'm going to call the idealist. Now, why do I use that word? Well, idealism is a philosophy. Uh, and it fits these people really well. Now, don't check out just immediately, okay? I, I am, at least part-time, a philosophy professor, and I have enough of students checking out. So don't, don't do that to me. Hang in there with me. There's a reason I bring this up, okay? Philosophical idealists believe that everything in life is fundamentally mental. Human consciousness and reason is, if I'm an idealist, it's how I understand the world because the world is fundamentally reasonable and it can be explored by reason alone. And because of that, idealists are skeptical of knowing anything outside of the mind. And more particularly, if you're an idealist, you're skeptical of knowing anything outside your own mind. This is the way I see it. I don't know how anybody else could see it in any other way than how I see it. And that makes life sometimes a challenge for you. And some of you are this. Like you may have never taken a philosophy class. You may, you, you may hear some of the terms that I've just used and they're very foreign to you. But you've been living this way your whole life. And here's why. It's because God created you, hardwired you with a natural gut sense of how things ought to be. You just know. And most of the time you're right about that. Furthermore, juxtaposed against that ought is the is. God has given you a keen awareness of how things are and given you a keener awareness than perhaps anybody else in your family or in your church family of the measure of the gap between what is and what ought to be. This is the reality I'm living in. This is all the things that are wrong. And if we could fix all of this, then we could get to this. Sometimes these people are called reformers. And, and here's, what you, here's what you really believe. You believe that God has given you the capacity to improve the world. And I'm going to tell you something this morning. You're right. He has given you that capacity. And it is what makes self-awareness so incredibly important for you. The Christian story itself tells us that God created a perfect world. He created the ought world. He created that world that ought to be but is not now. The Christian story also tells us that humanity rebelled from the very beginning and that as a result, things aren't as they are supposed to be. And if you're an idealist, you're more keenly aware of that than anybody else in the church. You sense that disparity. It keeps you up at night and your strongest sense of drive is to do something about it. That's why many people choose education or medicine. Or, politi or, or political science as a major. It's, and many of you, and not everybody who's in those professions, wouldn't necessarily be wired like an, or an idealist, but for so many of you, your chosen profession is the result of an internal drive to heal, to improve, to make things better. And as we look across the narrative of Scripture, you have a kindred spirit with one of Jesus' most well-known, most beloved most idealistic disciples. We're going to talk today about a man named Simon Peter. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, you can begin with me in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is the first time, at least in Matthew's gospel, that we encounter this man to, on the seashore with his brother Andrew. And we read the following. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, something very profound is happening here, but it's probably not the thing that you think is happening if the only thing you have is this text, okay? Oftentimes, there are assumptions here that make something happen that's more profound than what's actually happening, okay? These men, at first glance, it looks like they just leave everything. And see, I've heard messages. I'm sure you have too. These guys, they look up. They just see this stranger, this guy named Jesus. And he says, follow me. And without thought, they just throw their nets down and go. And that's what we need to do. No, that's not what we need to do because that's not what happened. Okay? Read carefully. The way we don't, the way we know that didn't happen is because if you look at John's gospel, chapter 1 specifically, it reveals that these men had already had substantive encounters with Jesus. The first one, when Andrew was a disciple of John. So, so what you're seeing here is not a picture of thoughtless impulsivity. These men have had time to consider something of the claims of Jesus. They've had some time to watch him from afar. But, but don't let that take away from the gravity of the decision that's made. By this point, these men had had plenty of time to think, and they act by becoming disciples of Jesus. So profound is that, that it's lost on us because of the way we have so radically redefined what it means to be a disciple. You need to understand that in the first century, when you followed someone, if you were going to be their disciple, that looked very different than what we often talk about in the church today when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus. Make disciples, the Great Commission says. And what we've reduced that to is get somebody to pray a prayer, sign a card, get baptized, and then don't worry about how they live from that point forward. Let's just get decisions, decisions, decisions. That's not what it meant to be a disciple in the first century. To be a disciple, the language of the New Testament, is both intentional and reflective of the wider culture in which it was written. A disciple is someone who had intimate companionship with his or her master. They were an adherent and a follower of their master. When their master spoke, they responded. When their master jumped, they asked, how high? Yeah, you are awake still. That's good. That's who these people were. And this is what we ought to love above all else about the idealist. They will embody better than anybody else in the church what it means to be a disciple. And the reason for that is they're hardwired to either be all in or all out. There's no second gear with these people. None. They're either wholly committed but one thing, or they're not committed at all, but they're not on the fence. You're never going to see them do that. And you will often see them challenge others to get off the fence. They're never halfway in. This is a person that would never, ever live a life that barely opens a Bible, never talks to the Lord unless there's trouble, refuses to gather with God's people, refuses to live a life that is separate from the world, and would simultaneously dare to call themselves a follower of Jesus. They won't do that. They're either going to be all the way in or they're going to be all the way out. And and Jesus' vision here is so compelling that Peter immediately drops his net to follow him. And this is because Jesus expresses his mission in a way that no real idealist could resist. I see that you are fishermen. That's good. That's a noble profession. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you will follow me, 
I will make you to fish for men. I will make you to gather men and women and children, not just from this region, but eventually extending the reach of the globe and make them my disciples as well. And Peter's response reflects so clearly the response of so many people in history have done the same thing. People in history who were aware of what is, but who saw what could be, and they chose to close the gap. This is why men like Raoul Wallenberg would leave a comfortable middle-class life and put his own life at risk in World War II to save tens of thousands of European Jews from Nazi invasion. It's why Gandhi would leave what would have otherwise been a very comfortable law practice and become an activist for Indian independence. It's why Joan of Arc would leave the comfort of her French village and restore the French throne and expel the English from their country. The idealism of people like this is inspiring, isn't it? And I have no doubt, no doubt, there are a number of people right in front of me who share that same heart. God has created you to be this way. It's why sometimes we might call you a reformer as well as an idealist. I see what should be. I know what is. I'm going to navigate the path from A to B. I'm going to get there. I'm going to fix this. And you will do it in a way that is fair-minded and honest and ethical and reliable and thorough and dedicated and hardworking. And you leverage all those traits toward your sense of purpose, which is to bring healing, to bring wholeness, to up the quality value, to up the quality control. Now, not every physician, not every nurse, not every teacher, not every community organizer or political activist is an idealist. But many idealists become physicians and nurses and teachers and activists and community organizers precisely because they want to bring healing. They become teachers because they want to raise up the next generation of leaders. They become community organizers and activists because they want to effect change for the good of all people. And that's Peter in a nutshell. Perhaps the most dominant personality of all of Jesus' disciples, constantly striving after high values, even at great personal sacrifice. And he's driven by this ideal that we find in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what drove Peter. People all over the world, you don't have to be Christian to be an idealist, but I'm going to tell you, people all over the world may, may be wired like this. None can actually accomplish it like those who understand that this is the backdrop for all of it. Peter grasps this. This is his own confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He knew who Jesus was. He was also unaware of the disbelief around him, which means he knew what was and he knew what ought to be. And that's exactly what leads to scenes like what we read about in Acts chapter 2. And at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, we see these words, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself... And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Leave what is, go to what ought to be. And so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. This man knows what is, he's keenly aware of what should be, and his entire life as a result is to literally close the gap between heaven and earth. 
And he knows the only way he can do that is through the one person who's actually successfully closed that gap, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people in this room in front of me who are wired just like that, and God can use you in a powerful way. But before he does, there's some things he's got to work on. There's some things he's got to work on. We know that, at least among other reasons, because this is what he had to do in Peter's life. Peter has to walk through some struggles. If you know Peter's biography, this is no surprise to you. The one who was most dedicated, oftentimes was also the one who suffered from what some of my ancestors in the South used to call foot and mouth disease. He just, he just couldn't do it, man. He's just trying to prize his toes out from his mouth. This is Peter. And he's got to walk through this. And he's got to face some imperfections of his own, which is the biggest thing for an idealist. When walking in the flesh, your challenge is to obey Jesus when he says the following in Matthew chapter 7. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So to someone who, like that four-year-old girl, has a hard time seeing anybody else's perception but her own, if you're one of those people, like, I, I have trouble trusting, I have trouble knowing anything outside not only the mind, but outside of my own mind, my own perception is right. Jesus is, would say to you, you don't see as clearly as you think you do. And if you would clear some of that mess out of your own eye, you would see a lot more clearly. He's not telling you not to judge people, by the way. He's not telling us that we should never try to be redemptive in the lives of other people. What he's saying is, try to get your own affairs in order, and then you'll see more clearly. The closer you walk with me, the more adept you're going to be at actually bringing the healing and the, re and the re repairing to the world that you want to bring. But you first got to get the log out of your own eye. Then you will see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, if you don't do this, you will walk in the flesh. And you'll be characterized by the same things that sometimes characterize Peter, rigidness and stubbornness, impatience with others, moralistic. You ever known anybody like that? You just shouldn't do that, right? Moralistic, demanding, uptight, hypercritical, unrealistic, if you're a boss at your work and you have the reputation when that 360 eval comes around every year of either being really, really hard to work for and that's coupled with this, with this phrase that kind of keeps coming up from your underlings, I can't make them happy. No matter what I do, I can't make them happy. No matter what I do, something's always wrong. You might be someone like this who's walking in the flesh. You might. Now let me tell you why that is. Everybody's got a besetting sin, right? We've talked about sins like pride and deceit and envy and, and, and shamelessness all throughout this series together. Here's the besetting sin if you're an idealist. It's anger. It's anger. Now, that's going to surprise some of you. And some of you are married to someone like this. Some of you are really close with someone like this. And everything I said so far made perfect sense to you until I got to this. And then you went, wait a minute. No, they don't. They don't seem angry. That's because they it's because it's inside. Okay? They're like Yellowstone. It's a beautiful park, but there's a super volcano underneath there that can completely obliterate the planet. Okay? 
They hold it inside. Somebody like this puts together a Christmas party, and they've got a, a vision for what that's going to look like, and it does not include you being late to the party. So when you show up 15 minutes late, they're going to look at you, and you're going to apologize, and you, you may even have a legitimate reason. Traffic, weather, flat tire, kids being demons, whatever it is. And you you walk up and you 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 utter profound apology. I'm so sorry that I am late. And they will look at you and they will smile and they will say that's okay. But it's not. It, it's not. <laughs> this person won't let you live that down. If they're walking in the flesh. Now, what does Paul tell us about anger? Look at Ephesians chapter four. Be angry and do not sin. That's what he says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So some of you who think that Christianity should be completely harmless. I'm sorry, I was watching a C.S. Lewis inspired movie last night and it was that line. He's not a tame lion that keeps coming back to me. Talking about the person of Jesus. Read those first two words. Be angry. Be angry. Anger is not a sin. It's not. Uh, it's not okay. It's, it's perfectly fine to be angry. And sometimes, oh, this is going to be so countercultural to some of you who watch way too much cable news. Sometimes it's okay to hate. Sometimes God demands that you hate. You're like, pastor, are you kidding me? God hates sin. God hates unrighteousness. God hates injustice. Why shouldn't we? Okay, It's okay to be angry at injustice. It's okay to hate immorality and ungodliness. It's okay to be against everything that has kept the world from what God intended it to be and has caused us to settle for what it is. That kind of anger is appropriate and God-ordained anger. But do not sin in your anger. Do not by virtue of your indignation at sin, fall into sin yourself. We, sin, we see that sinful anger come out in Peter's life. And we see it in several ways. The first is belligerence, which is interesting because the person he's being belligerent with is the person that he dedicated himself to following. Look at these words in Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Get that picture in your mind for just a minute. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I'm not going to let it happen. I see what ought to be. You have given me the picture of what ought to be. I'm living in what is, and I'm going that way. And what you've just described, you're taking us down, not up. That was his rationale. It will never happen. John Sullivan is a retired preacher from Florida, and he used to say, if you think your job is to straighten everybody out around you, you need to become an undertaker. Because that's the only way you'll do it successfully. And it's the only way you'll do it without protest from the people you're trying to straighten out. If your tendency is to resist everything that doesn't fit your idealistic box, remember where that mentality took Peter. To a place where he was actually trying to give a course correction to God himself. 
I don't think that's a healthy place. That's, that's not a place we need to be. Don't do that. This is where idealism can lead you if it's self-centered, if it's fleshly, if you're never satisfied with anything or anybody, and then eventually that will lead to aggression. Now we see this in the most violent way in John chapter 18. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That's just cool. I'm sorry. I just, I watched one too many John McClane movies, I guess, but that's just cool. But what happens? Jesus heals the ear, looks back at Peter, and says the one who lives this way is going to die this way. The one who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Now, most of the time, you can cover this anger up. Remember when I said for this kind of individual, there's a lot of anger, but it's, it's, it's underneath. It's buried really deep like that super volcano underneath Yellowstone. Okay. This is a moment when Yellowstone erupted. And it can come out in different ways. It doesn't always have to come out in physical violence. It can come out in verbal violence. It can come out in different kinds of, of, of other just nasty activity, gossip and slander. You can act very polite even when you are very angry, but you're sitting on top of this huge pile of impulses and desires that eventually are going to bubble up to the surface. They're just going to bubble up to the surface. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? We had a, I got a, email some time ago from someone our staff had decided to do something and uh, and they did the right thing by coming to me because I told them they could do it ultimately those kinds of things are my responsibility so I don't mind I don't mind the buck stopping with me I don't mind those kind of things happening but it was just it was this I can't believe you guys did this this was dishonorable to the Lord and I'm like how in the world could this particular thing like no nobody got drunk nobody Nobody was sexually immoral. Nobody, I mean, all, there wasn't, yeah, yeah. we had all kinds of unbelievers taking part in this thing. So I just wrote back and I said, okay, well, that's the last thing we want to be. Can you give me your rationale for why you feel this way? And their response was, well, because I would never do that. Oh, Okay. I didn't know the entire church had to develop its morality on you. I didn't know that. I didn't know that's how it worked. Funny, I thought we got those ideas from Scripture. I thought we were following Jesus. But that's where it'll take you. I got, I got my thing. I got my ideas. I've got no concept of what it looks like to consider somebody else's perception I'm just locked in. And anything that deviates from that, okay? This is how you get discernment bloggers. It's how you, it just, it, everything is like, you're like, I, Pastor, sometimes I don't know what to look at on the internet. Well, let me give you one clue. If they're always attacking somebody, you should probably just not read it. Because what you're probably dealing with is an idealist who's walking in the flesh, who only sees things one way, who refuses to consider that there might be another perception out there that their ideal might not be all of the perfection that they think it is. And then there's belligerence and then there's aggression. And then all of that's based in dogmatism. And we see this at its height in Acts chapter 10. This is a dream 
that Peter has. I'll give you the background on it in just a moment, but let's begin by just reading this account. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a giant sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Well, that should pretty much settle the issue, right? When God speaks and says this is okay, or if he says this is not okay, shouldn't that kind of be the final word? Yeah? Y'all are quiet in here. Do you, are you sure? This happened three times. Because Peter, like many of us, is stubborn. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, here's the background behind that account. The backstory is that there's this man named Cornelius. He's a military leader from Caesarea. He, uh, he is earnestly seeking the Lord, but he is not yet a follower of Jesus. We know that because no one has yet told him of Jesus. He's not had opportunity to believe in Jesus. And the Bible very clearly says uh, to us, how will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in the one that they never hear about? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So if you want a justification for the existence of the church, the necessity of the gospel being proclaimed verbally to other people as being the only way that they can gain eternal life, there you have it, right there, succinctly given by Paul in Romans chapter 10. And, Paul, and, and, and God chooses, in the case of Cornelius, he chooses Peter to deliver that message. Now here's the problem. Cornelius is a Gentile. Now that doesn't sound all that horrible today because I would imagine for the overwhelming majority of us in this room, so are we. So you, what's wrong with being a Gentile? I, I'm one. Well, this is different. You have a faith that is now ours, but the 2,000 years ago was emerging out of Judaism. So you had all these questions about whether or not Gentiles could be a part of the church, whether or not they, they needed to subscribe to certain Jewish practices before they could be part of the church. And so in the midst of that, God communicates his answer to Peter through a dream. He, he brings this sheet down from heaven, and there's all kinds of tasty animals on it. I'm saying, just add the mashed potatoes. The problem is, many of the animals on that sheet are also in Leviticus. And everything Peter knows, everything he's been raised to believe, tells him he's not supposed to eat it. So when he hears a voice that says, kill and eat, his response is hypercritical because in Peter's mind, it doesn't fit. You get it? Peter's not, he's hearing a voice of God. That should immediately say to him, I need to go re-examine what I think the scriptures are teaching because he's already preached that Christ has fulfilled the law. He's already preached this message, but he's having a hard time living it. Now we've got to do this application thing, and that's difficult because my box that I've been living in for all these years, 
tells me this, and this isn't what ought to be. This is some deviation from that, which is why Peter says, I don't eat that stuff, okay? This isn't a guy struggling and going, well, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, that, those, those kinds of people deserve compassion and patience. Man. This is a guy saying, I'm not eating what those Gentiles eat. Those people are beneath me. This is something that Peter will fight his entire life. Later into the history of the church, we read the following in Galatians chapter 2 from Paul. He says, when Cephas, and he's describing Peter there, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. It's like beyond the Cornelius event, he finally gets it and now he's now he's drawn back into this old way of living. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. This is what happens when you see yourself as the one who is always right. Okay? Now, there's a balance to this. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you just chuck years of Bible study, education, perhaps education that you may have in a particular field or, or anything like that just because somebody else has a different opinion. What I am saying is quite simple. You are not always right. We are not always right. But if we think we are, what's going to happen is we're going to try to fix things that aren't broken. We're going to try to repair people who are no more broken than we are. And, and, and when it doesn't go the way we think it ought to go, you know what's going to happen? Perpetual anger because of the imperfections in the world. You project perfectionism and everyone else around you feels judged even though you haven't said a single word. You could just look at them. Sometimes you may not even mean to do it. Now, the question is, how do you find redemption from this? Not just so that you won't do the bad things, but so that you can latch on to everything that God has given you to accomplish in the world. Well, let's be reminded what Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, that one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I quoted 2 Corinthians, his power is perfected in weakness. And I told you, I, said, I hate that verse. I hate it. Worse than any verse in the Bible. Some of you, that one right there, you hate it. I, I know it's true, I know it's, I know it's my problem, but, but I, I don't like this. Patience. What is patience? Well, for an idealist, it looks like this. You know what ought to be, you know what is, you know there's a gap. Patience is a willingness to live in the gap. And not always be mad because you and everybody else in your sphere of influence hasn't reached the ought. Because the ought... That's called the millennium. That's the millennial kingdom. And if there's all people in here, God bless you, you're my brother in Christ, and you may be right, but you're probably not. We're not there yet, okay? The millennial kingdom. I almost became my millennial about three weeks ago. Y'all don't want to hear that, do you? It's a nerd story. Like, I was I almost did it, and then I went back and I read Revelation 20 one more time, and I just went, yeah, no. Um, This is not heaven, this is earth. That's the point. Got to learn to live in the gap. All right? <clears throat> That's difficult. 
I, I took my first pastor when I was 26 years old. It was probably a dumb thing for me to do. It was probably a dumb thing for them to hire a 26-year-old to be their pastor. But they did. And they were incredibly patient with me. Whatever gifts I have developed over the years, whatever maturity I have attained over the years, I owe tons of it to those godly men and women in Muldrow, Kentucky for calling me to be their pastor. But when I first went there, the church had just experienced the split. Small church. There's only about 50 or 60 of them left. And and I, I went in there, and I, and I, with my seminary mind, right, all these things I've been trained to do, and I've been told, this is what ought, this is what the Bible teaches the church is, this is what the Bible teaches the church ought to be, this is what the Bible teaches about how this ought to be reacted to, and how that ought to be responded to, and I, I had it all in my mind, and they, and the, this 26-year-old brain, they weren't doing anything right. It never occurred to me that in the middle of all those decisions, they also hired me. I don't know. Maybe that should have been a clue. I was at my wit's end. Timothy Booker, who continues to this day to teach at Southern Seminary, my alma mater, I went into his office. He was one of my mentors at the time, teaching me evangelistic preaching. And, and I just, he gave me an hour, bless his heart, to just kind of, just kind of vomit all this stuff. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't know what I've gotten myself into. And I don't... And he was one of the guys that in the classroom, this is what God's word says. We don't move from it. This is what the church should be. This is how people ought to respond. This is the godly way to respond. I thought of all people, he would understand. And he looked back at me about 20 years, my senior. And he said, Joel, if, uh, if you're going to survive, you're going to have to let some of that go. You're just going to have to let it go. How much of it? He said, most of it. Most of it. And that's still a fight. Because I've got an internal drive that, that sees myself as responsible for a lot of things. And so that, that's, a, that's a fight sometimes to just stand back. This isn't even my predominant style, but just for me to stand back is pretty high with me. To stand back and go, God's people, not mine. Mine in the sense that he has given you to me to steward. You're mine in the sense that I love you. Mine in the sense that I want your good. But in the ultimate sense, his, not mine. And, and that, boy, it just took forever. But, but for a lot of people, that's the thing. You've got to learn to live in the gap. And ever since that moment of awakening, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to preach several ordination services for young pastors and I tell them, I said, this is what I should have learned. If I'd learned this at 25, I'd have been a whole lot better at 26. So let me tell you right now, Revelation 7 is the church as she ought to be. It is the church as she one day will be. Beautiful. But right now, she's an ugly woman. Sometimes. You got to learn to live in the gap. That's what patience looks like. Come out of the clouds, stop waxing philosophical, living in the ivory tower of how things always ought to be. Keep that in mind because your, your role in the body of Christ is to push us toward that ideal, to, to up the quality control in the body of Christ. Absolutely. But you can't do it if you're living up there. You got to live in the real world. Let me give you three very practical things that might help you with this. Here's the first one. You ready for this one? Learn to relax. Just learn to relax. Don't be wound up so tight that you can't enjoy the world. 
This is the first of five sermons I've got to preach over the next 24 hours. And then we go to South Carolina for a few days to spend some time with extended family. And so for our immediate family, there's no time between now and then to actually sit down and open gifts and do all of that thing that you and your nuclear family probably do as well. So for the Rainey family, we always do that on the Friday night before these events start. That's when we do it. And so that happened Friday night. My little Gracie, I buy a present just from dad. I don't know. It's a tradition, I guess, for each of my kids. Gracie's was no lie. It was about this high and about that wide and about that deep. And so it doesn't go under the tree. It goes beside it and it rivals the tree. And so all week long, she's been wondering what in the world this thing is. And I won't tell her. And it's just been great and fun. And so finally, she gets her opportunity. What's my temptation in that moment? As I say, all right, sweetie, you can open it now. Right. And then, and then I'm going to do this. All right, here's, let's get it to work. Let's get it. I got to make the right angle because people on Facebook need to know, right? I got to get this, my Twitter. I got to know. And, and what's going to happen? Yeah, I'm going to miss the whole thing. So my other children took the picture because that's why I had children. So that I could enjoy the moment. Because you don't, yeah. don't be wound up so tight trying to make everything so perfect. From the pictures to the way the gifts are wrapped. To the way the party went. That you can't just live in the moment and enjoy. Some of you, we talked about the enthusiasts several weeks ago. The people whose temptation is the opposite to yours. They might need to wind themselves up a little bit to actually get something done. But some of you that are a little too wound up need to hang out with some enthusiasts. And relax and have some fun. This is, again, why God created the body of Christ. So that we complement each other and we bless each other and we help each other. Don't miss it. Don't miss it simply because you can only see the gap. Number two, be patient with other people. Be patient with other people. Because here's the secret that you may not know. If you're wired like this, like a Peter. They're being patient with you. They are. And they're not going to change overnight, and neither are you. And so if iron can sharpen iron through that process, and you can express your love and not always be hypercritical and be patient. Number three, do not sin in your anger. For some of you, that might involve just finding a place of silence and solitude. It's to be on your own. For others, it may be serving in submission under other people. But for all of us, it's this. Enjoy the grace that you get from others and revel in the grace that God has given you. Because that gap on God's standard of holiness, you're like at the bottom. Right? That's what the gospel teaches and the only thing that can get you to that ideal is the grace of God. You should revel in that grace. It already surrounds you. It already permeates you. It's already, I mean, you're not in hell. That proves it. Revel in the grace of God. Ultimately, the reason for this is because you have to be healed before you can provide healing to others. Look at this one last passage from John 21, 17. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Now, now why the grief in that moment? Because less than a hundred hours earlier, Peter had denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. Three times. And this exercise happens three times. It is Jesus' process for restoring Peter, to bring healing. And if you're this kind of individual, Jesus created you for this, just like Peter. But it's only after the healing comes that Jesus can say this, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Your God-given design to repair the world comes from a grace that has repaired you. That's the essence of the gospel. That is what you must cling to if you're an idealist. God, Jesus created you to feed, to encourage, to empower, to heal, to teach. But he did it to do all of this by taking people from where they are to where God ultimately wants them to be. In order for that to happen, Jesus has to feed, encourage, empower, heal, and teach you. Which means you got to get out of the box and open up your mind. And the thing you need for most self-awareness is to realize that you are not everything that you think you are and that others around you are not more broken than you and that the only way you can fulfill your God-designed purpose is if you do it as a fellow recipient of the grace of God. Because grace from God is the only thing that can make a world a better place. That's what we celebrate tonight, starting tonight, isn't it? It is the invasion from heaven to change, to turn back everything that our enemy had done, everything that we have done to ourselves and to each other and to this earth. It is only by grace that all of that comes undone and is restored to what it should be. Live in that grace. And Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is an ideal. There is an ultimate standard. There is absolute truth. We thank you for the people in our midst to whom you have given a keen sense of that. Father, we need that. We need that reminder. We need to always remember that in every area of our lives, we're still living in that gap between what is and what ought to be. And so, Father, through a message like this, my prayer is that, that your spirit would empower us to move closer to that goal. Father, that in, at the end of 2019, we will look back and say we are closer to you, not only individually, but as a, as a corporate body. We are closer to you now than we were at the end of 2018. May that, may that process continue as we grow towards you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. 
Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.